When it comes to our commitment to truth, we find that commitment often tested in times of trial. Many will testify that seasons of trial are the times when they prove the Lord. And as they come out of those trials, they will testify looking back and they'll say, those were seasons where they felt closest to the Lord. But when you're first confronted with those trials, undoubtedly they test our conviction regarding truth and regarding our gods. We do, at least most of us do, we find ourselves shaken as to our confidence in the Lord. And at times we can find ourselves saying with Asaph, have we kept our hands clean in vain? To put it in modern parlance, is it really worth it? Is it worth standing for Christ and for truth? You see, what's clear in Second Timothy is that it is not an easy time to be a child of God. Paul's in prison, and he's writing to Timothy at a time when even those in the church have forsaken Paul in his time of need. It's clearly a time of challenge and difficulty. And in times of pressure and crisis, it is a test of our resolution and our convictions. Timothy is being exhorted here to hold fast the form of sound words, chapter 1, verse 13. He is being exhorted to hold the truth and to pass the truth on. Verse 2, the same commit thou to faithful men. If you like, it is a prototypical text for a seminary, the recognition that the Word of God is passed on by faithful men to others who will also bring the Word of God to the nation. You see, in a world that is opposed to truth, such a task will not be easy. Verse 3 begins with those two words, Thou, therefore. The thou again reminds us that Paul is particularly addressing his son in the faith, Timothy. And that therefore connects with the previous idea that as Timothy is to hold the truth and to pass the truth on, he is going to have to endure hardness. And that word, again, has the idea of enduring afflictions. Pressing on through afflictions as a soldier of Christ Jesus. The book, for 2 Timothy, sorry, 2 Timothy, this whole book, it repeats on several occasions the concept that we are going to suffer. Verse 12 of chapter 2, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. And then over in chapter 3, and the verse number 12, even more emphatically, it says this, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so as Timothy is living in this world, he thinks about the environment, and he understands he lives in an environment that is under the curse. And in that environment, he's faced with many enemies, inside and outside the church, those who hate the Lord and are seeking to undermine the cause of truth. Add to that, of course, the forces of evil against the church of Christ, those spiritual forces, and you see that Paul tells Timothy, you're going to have to endure hardness. And in his exhortation to Timothy, Paul uses then these three metaphors in verses 3 through 6. A good soldier... This was that, and that forms a simile as a good soldier. You then have the idea of the athlete in verse number 
four, a man striving for masteries. And then you have the farmer or the husbandman, verse number six, the husbandman that laboreth. Each of these, I think, help us to illustrate the truth that holding on to the gospel in such a time is a challenging task. I'm going to argue that I believe these three terms, these three concepts, are particularly addressed to Timothy as a servant of the gospel, as a minister of the gospel. And so please bear with me as I work my way through the three pictures and then then seek to properly apply it to the wider congregation. In other words, to begin with, I'm speaking primarily to myself. Um, The implication, of course, also to the elders among us. But it is, I think that is Paul's initial focus. And so first of all, see the soldier as a model, a picture of focused service. Paul refers to Timothy as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And as a soldier, he is one who has been chosen of Christ, verse 4, chosen him to be a soldier. As such, he is to be committed to the service of Christ, that he may please him who hath chosen him, and he is to be compliant as a soldier of Christ. Chosen, committed, and compliant. And for this to happen, the soldier must be focused. That's the primary point in this particular illustration. No man that warreth as a soldier entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. Now, this is one of the reasons that I think this is particularly focused towards the gospel minister. Not entangled with the affairs of this life. Now, clearly, the language used here teaches much about the ministry. If any of you young men believe you may be called to ministry, you must ensure that you're chosen by Christ, called by Christ, and that you're committed to pleasing Christ above all else. It's got to be your focus. But as such, you must not be entangled with the affairs of this life. Now, what is Paul referring to here when he says, verse 4, no man that worth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life? What's that all about? Well, I suppose initially you may jump to the conclusion that he's referring to sinful practices. Again, that's very legitimate. You go back to our over started chapter 2, and the verse number 22, Paul tells Timothy, flee also youthful lusts. Undoubtedly, there's a need, we'll come to this later on, for the man of God to be purged, sanctified, meat for the master's use. In fact, if you turn across to 2 Peter chapter 2, you'll see this idea of being entangled, used particularly with regards to sin. 2 Peter 2 and the verse number 20. Again, this actually is dealing with the whole issue of false apostles, false prophets, false teachers. And they are those who profess, verse 20, for if after they have escaped the pollution of this world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. This describes apostasy. Those who once seem to walk with the Lord, but they find themselves entangled with the pollutions of this world and they're overcome. And so, yes, if a soldier is to be useful to the Lord, he must not be entangled with the sins of this world. But the words used in 2 Timothy 2 verse 4, I believe, are not only referring to sins. And in fact, I don't think they're even primarily referring to sins. 
I think he's referring to those legitimate affairs in this life. That the soldier as a gospel minister, or the gospel minister as a soldier, is to be focused in his service of Christ, and therefore not be entangled with the things of this world, even in those legitimate things. You see, for God's people, they are to be entangled in the affairs of this life. Well, perhaps not entangled, but they certainly are to be involved. You turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And here I say you, you cannot have a contradiction between 2 Timothy 2, if that's referring to God's people generally, well then I think you do run the risk of a contradiction between 2 Timothy 2 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You have there in the verse number 11, what is the will of God for God's people in Thessalonica? That ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands. It's a commendation of labor and industry in the affairs of this life. You see, sometimes the people of God feel guilty, wrongly guilty. They may read 2 Timothy 2 and they may think to themselves, well, the soldier here, that, that must be me. And therefore, when I, when I do my day's work, my nine hours or eight hours a day, and I find myself through that time, I'm so focused on my employment, my mind is consumed with what I'm doing. Well, therefore, I'm being entangled in the affairs of this life. I must not be pleasing Christ. That is not a helpful interpretation of 2 Timothy chapter 2. And you may bind yourselves in your conscience wrongly. And in fact, you may end up violating principles such as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is based upon the fourth commandment. Six days shalt thou labor. You know, if you're an airline pilot, I want you to make sure that you're focused on what you're doing. I want to make sure that you're concentrating very, very much. Oh yes, you may offer silent prayers and you may seek God's help in your task. You ought to do that, but you're going to have to concentrate. The same is true for a, a brain surgeon. Or if someone is building me a set of cabinets for a kitchen, I don't want them to fall on top of me. You've got to make sure you do the job well. It's obvious, isn't it? But yet, sometimes God's people do read 2 Timothy chapter 2 and they presume to themselves, well, clearly... I'm doing something wrong. Not at all. So I suggest to you what's happening in 2 Timothy chapter 2 is this is an exhortation to the gospel minister that he must not be entangled in the affairs of this world. Now, as a general rule, of course, at times Paul, we know that Paul at times was a tent maker. But as a general rule, it is imperative for the gospel minister to keep himself, himself focused for the task. Thou therefore as a good soldier. Timothy, as a servant of God, thou therefore don't entangle yourself with the affairs of this life. Secondly then, there's the athlete. That's the term used, strive for masteries. Athletio in the original, from which we get our term athlete, it is referring to the games. The word crowned is also used there, verse number 5. Yet is he not crowned? And that refers to the victor's wreath. This referred to over in chapter 4, verse number 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Victory. Righteousness. And what Paul is saying here is that if a man is to earn, if you like, the reward 
that comes from faithful service, they must strive lawfully. They, they must not cheat. I distinctly remember the first time I was conscious of cheating in the athletic realm. 1988. Some of you weren't born then, but most of you were. 1988, Seoul. I remember watching the 100 meters race and seeing this absolute monster of a man and the camera zooming in upon Ben Johnson of Canada. 9.79 seconds, very fast, to running 100 meters. And a couple of days later, the story broke. He cheated. He did not win the crown lawfully. Didn't strive in that sense lawfully. Violated the laws, guilty of steroid abuse, and of course won the prize illegitimately. You get the picture. Nothing new under the sun. It must have been also true in Paul's day in the athletic realm. Tragic, but a helpful picture again to use for the man of God. You see, there are those, even within the Christian ministry, who are seeking to strive and to serve, but they are not doing so within the context of the Word of God. You see, there are laws governing the Christian ministry. And the Christian minister must live according to those laws. Look at verse number 14 of this chapter. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord. Here you get the idea of the man of God's responsibility to bring the word of God with authority. Verse 15, study, be diligent to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And when the man of God misuses the word of God for his own agenda, he's not striving lawfully. It's a very serious thing. You've got to pray. Pray for our denomination. Pray for our ministers. Pray that they will be those who will strive lawfully. Pray for me in that regard. That I would never succumb to the temptation to misuse the word of God for my own agenda, for my own purposes. But rather be one who is rightly dividing the word of truth. We'll come to that in a later study. You take chapter 2, verse 22. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. The rules for the man of God, his conduct to labor in the word, his character here marked by righteousness. And you take on down verse number 24. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach patient in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves. Or chapter 4, verse number 1, even most emphatically, I charge thee, preach the word. Here's the duty of the gospel minister. Again, one of the things marked the church in the last number of years are that senior pastors seem to be more given to administration than to preaching the word of God. They feel the weight of other things upon them, and they lose their focus, strive lawfully, be a laborer in the word of God. So that's the, that's the image of the athlete. And then thirdly, there is the image of the farmer. The image of the farmer. Of course, what I've said regarding the crown unlawful, of course it has application to the wider body of God's people. The crown is offered, there is a crown offered to all those that love God's appearing, chapter 4. I'm just saying that here in chapter 2, the focus particularly is the gospel minister, but for all of you, you've got to strive within the law of God. The farmer then, the third thing, the farmer. And here, I think this is the most difficult of the three metaphors that are used. Verse number 6, the husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. 
The word laboring, that's an easier one. It is an emphatic word that has this idea of laboring to fatigue. Uh, we saw the same word this week in our prayer meeting in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and the verse number 12. We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you to fatigue. One of the things, if you see some of the old movies of the uh, perhaps the 1800s and the Jane Austen age in, in England, you have the picture of the man of God as a fat man generally who is a complete lazy person. That was the image, that was the idea of the man of God at that time, and tragically that is often the case. The man of God is to be a laborer to the point of tiredness and weariness and fatigue. And the farmer, similarly, the husbandman that laboreth. But then you've got this reference to the husbandman be first partaker of the fruits. The first to enjoy the fruits of the labor. Now, that's an Old Testament principle. Don't turn to these, but Deuteronomy chapter 20. And what man is he that hath planted a vineyard and hath not yet eaten of it? Right, being the farmer, they, they enjoy the fruit of the vineyard themselves first. Or Proverbs chapter 27. Whoso keepeth a fig tree shall eat the fruit thereof. That was true. You, you know the situation with the husband man. Of course, the first fruits went to God. But, but they also were the first to enjoy the fruits of their labors that they kept for their family, and then they sold the rest. That was old-fashioned subsistence living. You only sold what you didn't need to keep yourself, and so the farmer enjoyed the fruits of the labors. That's changed, of course, in modern farming, but that was the principle in those days. So what about the minister? How, how does this tie in with Paul's exhortation to Timothy to endure hardness. Well, simply the minister is to labor for fruit. The minister is to have a focus laboring for fruitfulness in their tasks. But what is that fruit? Well, turn back, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you see this fruitfulness. We have the reference, the fruitfulness in verse number 6, where Paul says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. You know, the context here is of division in the church, and there are those who've got a party spirit regarding a particular minister, whether it be Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, or even that special group who are of Christ. And you have all of these different factions and divisions. That's carnality, according to verse number 1. And so Paul makes the point, you should not be carnal, divisive, because each man of God has contributed to your, what? To your faith. Verse number 5. Who then is Paul, who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed? So what's the fruitfulness that God gives the increase of in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? It is the fruitfulness of unbelievers coming to faith, of idolaters coming to serve the true and living God. And they recognize here that God uses human instruments to bring about the fruit. Oh yes, God gives the increase, but that does not make Paul or Apollos unimportant. Their tasks were vital to their fruitfulness. And so what they're laboring for, they're laboring for fruitfulness in their ministries. That's what it's all about. Now that fruitfulness is not simply those coming to profess faith, 
but it's those who persist in that faith. Because what you see in verse number 9 is that the picture changes. Verse 9 of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry. That's the, that's the agricultural imagery. And then he changes it, ye are God's building. In other words, he's going to say, well, also, you're not only God's husbandry, you're also God's building. And then verse 10, according to the grace of God, as a wise master builder, the apostle lays the foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. He is the one upon whom the church is built. But then verse number 12 says this, now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. And so you're seeing for the gospel laborer, it is not simply a matter of seeing people put their hand up and saying, I believe the gospel. The desire is to build upon the foundation of Christ gold, silver, precious stones, those things that will withstand the fires of judgment in the last day. Genuine, persevering faith in the believer. And so what's the minister looking for in fruitfulness? It is in essence those who are genuinely born of the Spirit of God, the increases of God. But what's that seen externally? People coming to faith in Christ and people persisting in that faith. So the gospel minister's labors are not aimless any more than the farmer seeks to do his work without looking for a harvest. And so the minister, the man of God, is looking for fruitfulness. That's a challenge because we are Calvinists. And we believe with all of our hearts that God gives the increase. But that does not excuse me or any other minister from lying back and not laboring and not laboring for fruitfulness. It's vital that I labor for fruitfulness, that I labor intentionally, that every time I bring the word of God, every time I go to the study, every time I go to the prayer closet, my desire is, Lord, bring sinners to faith and keep your people by your almighty power through the Word and by the Spirit of God. You see, Paul himself, his own ministry, he desires for this fruitfulness. He's not saying anything different here than he said before. Look at Philippians chapter 1, please. Philippians chapter 1. I just mentioned to you again, when he's seeking to go to Rome, even in Romans chapter 1, he says that he purposed to go to them that I might have some fruit among you. He's desiring fruitfulness and going to Rome, but here in Philippians chapter 1, as he Again, what works through the idea, will he live or will he die? He understands, nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Verse 24 of chapter 1. Then chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 1, he says this. Therefore, my brethren, my dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown. You see, the laborer has first partaken of the fruits. Paul understands that in Philippi, he's laboring. His labors are for their benefit, that they would press on in the things of God. They strive together for the gospel. He understands that's his purpose. And so when he reflects upon them, he says, you're my joy. Like the farmer has a joy in the harvest. So the apostle can say, the believers in Philippi, they are his joy. 
That's why I think the minister partakes of the fruits of his labors. The husbandman, by the second Timothy, that laboreth must be first partake of the fruits. And I think what happens to the man of God is they see the fruits of their labor, they see the grace that God has given, and they rejoice in that. And they say to the church, you're my joy and my crown. I think it's a very legitimate way to look at the gospel ministry. So if these things apply to the gospel minister primarily, well, what do they teach all of us here today? I hope you understand now that I am never deliberately going to be careless with the Scripture and simply take these illustrations and say, well, here's how it applies to you in this regard. I want to seek to apply this in a way that's proper. And so I've given you four words. You'll see in your outline there are four words that I think help us to work through some application. First of all, there is the issue of endurance. In essence, the importance of not giving up. The whole context here of 2 Timothy is all about the idea of holding fast. Though it's difficult, not falling back, not denying the truth, not denying the Lord. You'll see that on down in verse number 12, if we deny Him. It's about persevering. And leaders, gospel ministers, they have a role to serve as an encouragement to others in the realm of persevering. When the man of God throws in the towel, use a boxing metaphor, and gives up, that discourages the people of God. And so it's vital, again, I encourage you to pray for our ministers widely in our denomination. Pray that they would not fall back or give up in a difficult time. Because it is important that we press on and persevere. You see, go back to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4. Paul will say to Timothy, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit. And here's a term, in faith. That if we're looking at a time when it's difficult to believe the gospel, when it's pressurized upon us that we would deny the faith, Paul tells Timothy, Be an example in faith. This is interesting. This section actually parallels so much of what we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, neglect not the gift that is in thee. Or over in verse number 10 of chapter 4, for therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God. He is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Paul is telling Timothy, be an example of persevering faith. Is that not what we read in Hebrews? the great catalogue of the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11, that those who are given positions of leadership in the people of God, that by their leadership they are used to then encourage others to endure. Is Christ not our great minister? Is he not our great apostle and prophet? Is he not our great pastor and shepherd? And so Christ himself, as a model pastor, shepherd, as a prophet, as a man of God, what does he do? He leads by example as he endures. Just turn quickly, Hebrews chapter 11. I just want to show you this. And so the actions here of the man of God by way of endurance, they ought to serve as a model and as an encouragement. 
And I, I'm not even talking here for an example. As much as by their own endurance and pressing on, they would encourage you also to press on in this regard. And so all of Hebrews chapter 11, you've got mentions of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, all of these great heroes of the faith. Joshua is there by implication. David is there. Samson is there. These are those who did not deny the Lord, but endured to the end. And so you get a chapter 12, verse number 1. Wherefore, in light of the encouragement you see from these people, lay, thus lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. So your chief example of endurance is Christ himself. Lesser examples are those in Hebrews chapter 11. Lesser still are those men of God who endure. And so when Paul tells Timothy, don't give up, don't fall back, he's encouraging Timothy in this regard, he's exhorting Timothy in this regard, it is that you would all understand the importance of not giving up. Are there any in that position right now today? Now, as you find yourself in the things of God, you're at the point where you say to yourself, I think I've kept my hands clean in vain. Perhaps you're not quite there, but honestly, you would say to yourself, it would take very little else for me to get to the point where I'll just deny the Lord completely. Well, may this exhortation today from Paul to Timothy encourage all of us of the importance of giving up. Because when iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, said the Lord in Matthew chapter 24. Iniquity is abounding today. The love of many professing believers is waxing cold, and the one that endured to the end shall be saved. Now be clear, we are not saved because we endure, but we endure because we're saved. Endurance is not optional, but praise God, we endure by the power of God. But yet as we endure by the power of God, we also must take responsibility to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so, there is the issue of endurance, the importance of not giving up. Secondly, there is the issue of example. And here, it is the idea of really the importance of the world to come. Again, if verse number four particularly refers to the minister that he would not entangle himself with the affairs of this life, if that application is particular, then it must be an example to focus on gospel and glory. You see, if you find yourself and the minister of the word of God is consumed in this world, surely you should think to yourself, there's an inconsistency between his actions and his preaching. He preaches heaven and a king to come. But he clearly loves this world so much, he has no desire for heaven. I feel the weight of that very, very keenly. You will, of course, have examples in your minds of those professed servants of God. And their lives are lives of opulence and abundance. Not a matter of sufficiency, but opulence in a way that is saying we love this world and all of its goods. 
The man of God must not be entangled. That does not mean, I've said already, it does not mean that a believer should not work in this world, but it serves as an example. That what really matters is the world to come. And whilst this world depends upon God's people laboring regularly in the matter of this world, ultimately this world will be burned and we see a kingdom that is yet to come. So you think back of the Levites. Remember Joshua chapter 13? Taking you back a number of years now to the series in Joshua. But in Joshua chapter 13, we saw the example of the Levites. Joshua 13, in the verse number 14. Only on the tribe of Levi he gave non-inheritance. They didn't get inheritance. Chapter 14, 13, verse 33. But under the tribe of Levi, Moses gave not any inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance. I don't know how ultimately to be an example to you in this regard. I strive not to love this world. I strive not to be entangled in this world. I'm thankful for your kindness to me that enables me not to have to work in another fashion outside the gospel ministry. But whatever was my example or somebody else's, please understand that Paul is telling Timothy here to labor in such a way that God's people would understand that they must seek the things that are above. Turn, please, to Matthew chapter 6. Just one reference and then we'll move on. Matthew chapter 6. Again, you know the context here, the Sermon on the Mount, of course, the Sermon of the Kingdom. Things that must be true of the kingdom of Christ. Matthew chapter 6, the verse number 20. Verse 19, sorry. Lay up not for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. May God's word bring that word of encouragement and challenge to all of your souls that even as you labor in this world, you're seeking the world to come, setting your affections on things above, Colossians chapter 3. Example, the importance of the world to come. Thirdly, exertion, the importance of your soul. There's a link between the laborer and the harvest. That's true in the natural realm, the Industrious farmer will have a greater harvest than the lazy farmer. That's all three proverbs. The one who does not sow comes to harvest. There's nothing there. And so there's this this link between the laborer and the fruitfulness. And so you look at a hardworking farmer, and you go through Lancashire County, and you'll see some of these farmers, and they are breaking their backs. And you get around to harvest time, and you see the abundance of the fruitfulness that they are enjoying. And you can, you can predict that in advance. You say, well, there's a hard-working farmer. The sun's going down. The sweat's upon his brow. And he's laboring for fruitfulness. And what do you think at that time? Well, maybe not very much. But what should you think at that time? He really wants a harvest. He, he really wants a harvest at the end of the day. He's working so hard because he really wants this harvest. And so it should be the case 
that as you behold the man of God, the minister laboring in the pulpit and laboring in the study, whatever it might be, as you behold their labors, you should understand he really cares for the value of our souls. That through their laboring, you should perceive the importance of your soul. That if their task is to get fruitfulness, and fruitfulness is belief that endures, then you should see that as they labor, they're laboring that you will be fruit that endures. And as you see the labors, you realize in your soul, my soul is really important. And they really care for my ever-living eternal soul. I, I honestly, please, I wish, I wish that I could labor in such a way that you would realize the importance of your soul. I don't think I even barely do that. But the principle's here. You ought to realize when you come to church that whoever's preaching here, whoever it is, that they labor in such a way that they realize you have a soul that will never, ever perish. And your soul will be in heaven or hell. And I, I earnestly pray, there are some people in the five and a half plus years I've been here, there are some people who were here and they sat under the ministry and they've gone, they've left, they've gone into the world, wherever they are. I pray that when they come to judgment day, they will not be able to say, the preacher did not care for my soul. It's an awful thing for someone to sit in a church for years and years and go to a lost eternity without any sense the preacher cared for their souls. I pray that by God's grace that will not be said here. And I pray that even today you'll realize that as Paul will speak to Timothy here and say you've got to labor for fruitfulness and as you strive to weariness that you understand. Therefore, if Paul is saying this by the Spirit of God to Timothy, therefore it must be really important that I believe the gospel, that I trust in Christ, that I take Christ as my Savior. That must be really, really important. And it is. It's the most important thing. So by exertion, you should see the importance of your soul. And finally, the word enjoyment. The importance of us acknowledging God's goodness. You see, a focused gospel ministry should convey to God's people a desire for fruitfulness. There should be the climate, the atmosphere in the church, from the pulpit to the prayer meeting, in our general interaction, there should be manifest a burden for the unbelieving souls. That should be part of the heartbeat of the church. That anybody who's encountered our church for a brief time should realize they really desire fruitfulness. That those who don't believe will come to believe the gospel. For God to give the increase, that burden should be present in all of our souls. Yes, it's got to be here. But from here, it should set the climate for the entire church that we all have this tremendous burden that God would give the increase. And that burden would then it would affect our prayer meetings. It would affect our interactions with each other. It would affect our conduct in the world. It causes, it causes grief to the man of God and it should cause grief to every child of God when souls reject the gospel. You desire fruitfulness, not barrenness. And so you labor in the word of God. And where are the conversions? Where are those coming to be in Christ? All I see is barrenness, not fruitfulness. That's grief. 
grief when people profess the faith and fall away. Wood, hay, stubble. What an awful thing it would be that if in this congregation there are those who are consumed by fire in the last day. And so there is this desire for fruitfulness. But sometimes the desire for fruitfulness in the gospel minister acts like a cataract in their spiritual eyes. You know a cataract? You get a cataract in your eyes, you can't see. Things can become dim, cloudy. Well, sometimes the preacher's desire for souls serves as a cataract in such a way that they do not see what God is doing in their midst. And if that happens to me, it can happen to you as well. You can be so busy as I can be so busy perceiving barrenness and trouble and difficulties. We see backsliding. We see people not consistent. We see all of these things. And those things, they cloud our vision in such a way they serve as a cataract that we do not see the signs of fruitfulness in the work of God. You haven't fallen away. Praise God. You're kept by the power of God. And God, in some small way, has chosen to use me in your life in that regard, that I can help you and help you to persevere in the faith. And if I'm blind to that, I'm, I am I'm not in a good place. And so I've got to partake of the fruits of the labors and rejoice in that. And so must you. And so you see, what do you see? Dr. Paisley used to talk about Willie Wood and Peter Pugh. Referring to the empty spaces. And you focus on the empty spaces. And the sparseness of this congregation right now. And you fail to see what God is doing in those who are sitting in the pews. God is doing great things in days of small things. And I praise him for that. And so let's enjoy the work of God. Without losing the burden for greater fruitfulness in the things to come. Three pictures. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. Yeah, it's been a tough week in my study this week. A lot of things that I've got to reflect upon and consider carefully as this year comes to a close and next year opens in God's will. But at the same point, what you see through it all is the work of Christ as he dies for sinners, sheds his blood on their behalf, and then entrusts his people, his sheep, to the care of under-shepherds, that the fruitfulness, the harvest is not lost, because Christ shall see of the travel of the soul and shall be satisfied. And so as you feel the burden, may you rest your burden upon the strong soldiers of Christ. He's able to bear those burdens and carry his church all the way home. May God help us to prayerfully consider these things today. Let's all bow together in a word of prayer. Eternal God and Father, we come into thy presence confessing again our inadequacies, confessing, O Lord, how difficult it can be to serve, to please you in all of our ways. I pray for our congregation here. We thank you for them. Thank you, Lord, for those who we trust in Thee and press on despite the difficulties. Thank You, Lord, for Your mercies in that regard. May we enjoy 
and the fruits of your goodness toward us in these ways. I know, God, give us a burden. We, we do do desire. We desire to see souls come into faith in Christ. We desire, O oh Lord, that the word, the seed that's been sown, and the bread cast upon the waters, that we'd see it and find it after many days. Oh God, use us in the days to come. May there be growth and increase in the work of God. That Christ, having died for his people, will secure their salvation. Help us, O oh Lord, we pray. Bless this day. Bless our brother Lefford as he brings the word tonight. May be encouragement to the hearts of God's people. Watch over, us, uh, watch over us, please, on this your day. May it be hallowed and blessed. May we give thee all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.